your news programme every morning with up-to-the-minute news and extensive analysis of issues from Korea and abroad. This morning with Alex Jensen on TBS EFM. Now, it's been more than two years since Songbuk-gu and Noon-gun districts became the first in Korea to introduce the so-called living wage. And recently, the Seoul Metropolitan Government, together with four other offices of the city, signed an MOU for adopting and expanding this. But what exactly does a living wage mean? How does it differ from the minimum wage? We've got Matt Padley, Senior Research Associate at the Centre for Research and Social Policy at Loughborough University in the United Kingdom, joining us live on the line. Thank you for doing so. Good morning, or yeah, good evening from me. Yeah, and well, again, as with all of our guests from your part of the world, it's, it's great to, that you took the time at, at what is an unsociable hour for you. So the, the background to this living wage system being introduced in the UK, could you help us understand? The idea has been around for an awfully long time, actually, and kind of dates back originally to uh, the 19th century. Um, and there was an interest then in a wage that would uh, kind of afford people a basic standard of living, so allow workers to buy the food, the clothes, the shelter that they need. And the idea, you know, remains fairly similar. Um, uh, the background to it um, through the kind of the late 80s, early 90s, there was a quite a big growth in in work poverty things like wage councils um, were abolished um, and when the Labour government came into power in 1997 um, you know they saw that there was a real problem or a growing problem with low pay um, and and wanted to do something to tackle this which is when the national minimum wage was introduced in 1999 mm. but over time, it became clear, actually, that, that that wasn't doing its job. It wasn't doing uh, what it set out to do um, and wasn't at a high enough level to, to kind of stem that increase in in-work poverty. Um, so 2001, in London, um, an organisation called London Citizens, a grassroots organisation, um, started to call for uh, a living wage. And that was a wage that would... Um, allow people to, particularly families, this is where it, it kind of originally came from, allow families um, to not have to work as much to be able to actually do the things that you'd expect families to be able to do. Um, and so they were really focused on the consequences of, of low pay, like kind of health consequences, yes. the impact on family life, so the things like that. So the ideal scenario is for the living wage and the minimum wage to be as one? Um, there are lots of arguments about whether that is the ideal um, scenario. Uh, there's something to be said for having a, a voluntary living wage um, uh, that, you know, is not statutory. There's been much discussion about whether or not uh, there would be a benefit of making it kind of compulsory, for instance. There were suggestions in, in, in the papers in the UK today, I think, um, of making a, you know, a living wage compulsory uh, at a far higher level, replacing the minimum wage. Um, I think there's also a view, the kind of counter-argument, that this would, it might diminish the kind of political potency of that idea if it was to be mm. a compulsory one, that actually a lot of its power comes from the very fact that it's, it is voluntary um, and it's seen as a badge that employers can wear, um, you know, that sets them apart from others. OK. And obviously there are some employees who don't need to make a living. They, they might be supplementing a family's income uh, and, and in those cases maybe... Uh, 
you know, the, the living wage is inappropriate, perhaps. You know, there's, there's many circumstances. Can you just give us a good idea of exactly how the living wage is calculated? Um, so currently, I mean, it's a little bit, little bit complicated because there are two living wages in, in, in the UK currently. Um, where I work at Loughborough University, we set, um, we do research that underpins the living wage that's outside of London. Um, and that's based on a, a big program of research that we do that essentially seeks to answer the question, what do people need for a minimum standard of living? Um, we talk to lots and lots and lots of people about the things that you need um, in order to have that socially acceptable um, and agreed on standard of living. Um, and that allows us to work out the wages, uh, the wage requirements in order to have the income necessary to provide those things. And that's that's about going back to the initial definition of a living wage and the initial idea that's about having food it's about having clothes it's about having shelter but it's also about those kind of additional things those you know being able to take part in society um, being able to you know spend time with your family and do things with your family um, so the, the calculation itself is based on you know an extensive program of research um, and within London it's calculated in a slightly different way but it both both ways of calculating a living wage seek to capture the cost of living, you know, the cost of a, mm. a kind of basic standard of living. And that, that sets it apart from the minimum wage. Within companies that uh, can wear this badge of honour, as you described it, do we then find um, increasingly discriminatory gaps closing, for example, against women or against younger people or any other minorities? I think, unfortunately, um, there is clearly still a gender gap. Uh, when it comes to pay, um, I think the most the most recent figures suggest that there's, on average, women are earning 20% less than men. Um, and there were some figures out from the Office for National Statistics in the UK um, earlier this week, um, looking at the numbers paid being paid below a living wage, and women are more likely to be paid below the living wage than men are young people are significantly more likely to be paid a living wage, um, so particularly 18 to 24-year-olds, um, than older workers. So the living wage has done lots and lots of good stuff, um, but there do, there do remain you know, these difficulties, particularly uh, for part-time workers, particularly for, for and, and a lot of part-time workers are, are women, and particularly for younger people as well. I'd like to look at this honour aspect of it because, you know, if it is voluntary, then that's hugely important. Uh, maybe we can take an example of the company Lidl, uh, which um, serves sandwiches and various other uh, food options for people in, in the UK. Um, that's a little bit of background. What's its relationship with the living age and how has it shifted? Uh, Little, I think, recently announced that they were going to pay everyone um, at the living wage, although there was some controversy about um, uh, people in, a, in, a, in Northern Ireland, a different part of the UK, not being paid the living wage. But um, actually, having a big employer taking that on um, and making that kind of announcement um, is a significant uh, bonus and kind of a boost to, to the overall campaign for a living wage. There is something like about... Um, 1,800 employers across the UK who are currently paying a living wage, um, and a big employer like Lidl or a bigger employer, kind of you know a very prominent one, particularly who are you know increasingly prominent um, within that kind of sector within the UK, them taking this on is actually quite a big quite a big deal, um, and you know the hope would be that 
um, because it's a badge of honour, um, because it's something that companies are kind of you know proud of and want to to boast about, that other organisations, other companies, other businesses would see that um, and feel you know a pressure to do yes. to do the same thing. Here in Korea, we have a number of nationwide chains as well who, who could probably better afford to introduce something like a living wage. But uh, the, the, the SMEs that struggle already to attract employees that are seen as a, as a lesser option that, that um, probably need the most financial assistance themselves but you know, may struggle to uh, actually pay out a living wage. Do, do you see a problem there? You know, there have been lots of um, uh, smaller employers within the UK who um, I think have found it difficult um, to kind of factor in uh, paying a living wage or to make that possible. Um, I think the flip side of that is that there are uh, there is a kind of growing body of research to suggest that there are savings potentially that come to you as a business if you are paying your staff at the living wage. So your recruitment costs, for instance, are likely to go down because retention of staff increases. Productivity has been shown to increase as well. So that there is a kind of there's a trade-off there to be made. Mm. Um, you're paying your staff. Uh, a slight, you know, a slightly higher wage. Um, in lots of cases, it's not significantly higher than it, than it would other be, otherwise be. You know, it's not it's not a, a, a massive investment, but there are as a, as a benefit for you as a company. Um, there's also some research suggests that, that not only productivity but also the quality of employee employees' yeah. work increases. So there there are benefits there. Well, you could probably turn a quality employee into um, a lesser one if they're struggling to make ends meet at home. Frankly, uh, that they're they're not likely to be the most motivated employee in the world. Mr Padley, yep. thank you very much for joining us. Quite all right. Great to have you with us. Matt Padley from the Centre of Research in Social Policy at Loughborough University. You can share your thoughts on this as well. I mean, if, if a company is not taking care of its staff at that basic living wage level, what sort of staff can it expect? That's a question we might ask ourselves. You can email us, efmthismorning at gmail.com.